Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sweater Weather. I'm Aaron Giovanone. Great to be back with you. This week is part two of my interview with Dr. Stephanie Ross. She's associate professor and director of the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. She is author, co-author, and co-editor of several works on Canadian unions and labor, including Building a Better World, An Introduction to the Labor Movement in Canada, and the book that we primarily talk about today, which is Labor Under Attack, Anti-Unionism in Canada. Both of those books are from Fernwood Publishing. In this second part of the interview, we talk union life and the inequalities that unions sometimes reproduce within themselves while trying to protect workers' interests. Seniority is a good example of this. Now, seniority is an important principle that unions have established to guide layoff, pay, promotion, etc. But seniority also comes with some problems, especially for how it negatively impacts, disproportionately impacts younger workers on uh, who are f further down on that seniority ladder. And as a couple of professors, we can't help but talk shop a little bit. We get into the crazily unequal workplace that is the contemporary university. Faculty unions have tolerated or accepted differential tiers of employment for a long time. This is the famous distinction between tenured faculty and sessional adjunct faculty. It's a corrosive situation that undermines worker solidarity. Okay, on to some business. Last episode, I talked about putting up a paywall. Uh, I just can't bring myself to do that. You may have noticed that this, this episode and episodes going forward are going to be free and open to the public. Sweater Weather is a public education project, so I don't really want to do anything that limits the, uh, the ability of the show to reach new audiences. But I do have to do something a little more to make the show financially viable. So I've come up with this as a pitch to, to you folks. If I can gain one new patron every week, by the end of the year, Sweater Weather will meet its operating costs. And uh, at that point, it'll be financially sustainable. So that's my goal, one new patron per week. Maybe this week is your week to become a patron of Sweater Weather. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash Canadian sweater. The link is in the show notes and on our website. Okay, let's get back to Dr. Stephanie Ross talking about anti-unionism in Canada, part two. I, I found it refreshing that in your, in your essay, talking about what some of these you know, real experiences that union members have that may lead them towards anti-union sentiment. Um, you get into, you actually have a critical perspective, like it's fair to me, on, on something like seniority, which is an important, you know, union principle that governs pay, promotion benefits, job protections, basically on, based on how long you've been employed there. Yeah. And, but this, you know, of course, has some contradictory effects. And I have to say, you know, you've already gestured already towards inequality within unions that maybe seniority, you know, can sometimes contribute to. But also uh, depends how that's viewed, really, or how that's structured. But certainly the differential tiers of employment, where you know basically new hires are assumed on an entirely different contract or very different contract pay structure, benefit structure, much worse essentially than uh, previously yeah. hired um, uh, workers. And you no, know, this is something that I have personal experience of finding it like extremely corrosive to feelings of solidarity or just mm -hmm. sort of positive identification with the union, with my fellow workers, mm -hmm. even though obviously I'm quite ideologically committed to yeah. the ideas of unions and, you know, 
you know, this is one of the reasons why I read your book and really wanted to talk to you. It is like just sometimes my own material experience of, you know, dealing, working within a union or just dealing with, you know, colleagues who, you know, like, oh, you get paid. I do the same job as you and yeah. uh, you get paid a lot more than me. And, uh, yeah. and, and it's, it's beyond, it's not a personal, you know, attack on anybody. It is just a recognition and a feeling of this structure of inequality that's actually built into, um, to, to, I mean, this is part of the contract that a union is constant, that our union is constantly agreeing to. So yeah. that is something that I struggle with just personally as somebody who's actually otherwise very supportive of unions. So yeah. Um, just, yeah, maybe you could talk about, um, you've talked about, uh, so we've mentioned the differential tiers of employment. Maybe mm -hmm. we could talk a little bit about um, seniority or mm -hmm. any of these other like sort of, you say you call them uh, like contradictions. Like these are right. like, these are parts of union life that certainly you make an argu argument for why they're there and what, what use they have, but they produce these contradictory negative effects at times too. Well, on the question of seniority, like it's very important for people to understand, like it's a, it's a very important positive development in the history of labor relations. It's like Absolutely. The, 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 like moving beyond the uh, whims of employers to decide who's gonna get promoted or hired or fired um, who's going to get to go on vacation or who's going to, you know, uh, get to, um, have a wage increase. Like all of those things, um, are real parts of not just the history, but of the present of labor relations. Um, and so seniority in replacing that arbitrariness with a neutral rule about how you're going to distribute good things and bad things in amongst a workforce uh, is a is a is an improvement it's an it's clearly the case um, and in some ways uh you know workers who might otherwise be disadvantaged by favoritism like especially where it intersects with sexism and racism for instance can really benefit from the rule that like the longer you're there, the more rights you have to good things, uh, like a better schedule or uh, a consideration for promotion, uh, etc. Um, the, the flip side, though, is that when, when seniority is used to distribute bad things, and I think in particular, uh, in terms of, you know, when there's scarcity, <laughs> how uh, seniority is used to distribute um, layoffs, for instance, uh, we get to some really serious problems because, um, and, and this is especially true as it intersects with like the intergenerational questions of justice, right? Where young workers are coming into workplaces and they're the last hired and therefore the first laid off. Um, sometimes at times in their life where they really need those wages um, because they are, they have no savings, they're starting out, they're, you know, buying homes or having a family, if, if those are even within reach, right? Um, similarly, where it intersects with desires or attempts to make the workforce more diverse, right? To bring more gender diversity or racial diversity uh, to a workplace, right? Again, last hired, first fired. And so the 
the way that seniority can kind of trump those other values, those other goals um, is a problem. And we have some lots of examples of how, um, you know, workers who are more recently hired um, because we're trying to in, introduce more diversity and more opportunity, uh, more employment equity um, are the first to suffer when there is scarcity. And so, you know, it, it, it leads us to, to consider, all right, what are some alternative ways to express and organize the neutral rule? <laughs> Uh, for and for distributing bad things, given that we have these other competing priorities that also need to be um, preserved and protected. So, for instance, uh, why why is why are layoffs the first uh, recourse? Why do union contracts not instead? Uh, put a primacy on work sharing uh, uh, or, you know, reduced, reduced working time for more people, right? Or a rotation of who will be laid off rather than having that be visited upon uh, one particular group. Um, you know, there are ways to think about how to redistribute bads that are more solidaristic. Uh, similarly, uh, there are ways to uh, distribute, uh, to, uh, to allow people to, um, more senior people who maybe have more savings, who have more um, other sources, other assets, wh whatever, uh, to, uh, to take layoffs rather than the youngest or the, the, the most recently hired. So there, there's ways to think about this in different, uh, with different solutions, um, and that, that those can be uh, prioritized. Um, and uh, that for similarly, like when layoffs are afoot, uh, you know, why is there overtime, right? Like the, the question of overtime as a, a kind of an entitlement um, is a problem because, you know, what, what are overtime rules designed to do? I mean, they're, they're designed to make getting people to work longer work hours more expensive for the employer. It's supposed to act as a disincentive to the employer to use overtime. Why? So that more people will get hired, <laughs> right? That, I mean, that makes sense, right? But in, in the concrete practice uh, in many workplaces, workers become incentivized to want overtime, to, 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 to take overtime. Um, and, and that has an impact on the availability of jobs. Um, and so I think that a, a more solidistic approach to the question of overtime needs to be sought because it has an impact on on the, the, the numbers of people who have access to jobs, not just work, right? There's lots of work to go around. The question is whether or not the, that work is, is provided to people in the form of jobs that 
are structured so that you can have a good, decent life on the basis of working that job. Um, and so I think that that reorientation is really important. Um, so, so, so thinking differently, I think it's possible. And there are lots of unions that do experiment, have, it, have used these strategies. They're just not widely in practice. And I think that they, they should be more widely practiced. Um, and, uh, not, and precisely because the current method of distributing uh, scarcity within workplaces, which is not the fault of the union. I mean, that's the employer's decision, right? But, uh, and that is a larger political question about the way that employers make decisions about what jobs are available. Um, but if we're going to put that aside and, and say, well, that's not in workers' control at present, um, we need more solidaristic ways to distribute good things and bad things because of the negative implications of not doing so for uh, workers' sense of the unions serving their interests, right? Or serving the interests of everyone, not just a particular group within the union. Yeah. Just uh, almost out of uh, self-interest, do you have anything more to say about differential tiers of employment? Because, mm. um, and how, maybe just speaking generally about that or what might be done mm. to prevent that. Because I, as I said, just to repeat myself yeah. again, I find this is a huge, huge cleavage within, for example, the academic workforce yes. essentially is created to very different, entirely different classes of employees who don't actually see their own interests in each other's uh, lot, quite frankly, at, at, at times. So this is a very, like a, a very stark example so yes. maybe just talk about, could you talk about differential tiers of employment and how destructive that's been? Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, Larry Savage and I also have a project on uh, contract academic faculty and um, trying to understand some of the dynamics around uh, the unionism in the post-secondary sector in Canada, both think in terms of full-time or let's say tenured faculty and sessional faculty. And so we've been writing and thinking a lot about this over the last couple of years. Um, and you're right, like this is, this is a complex arena because, you know, on the one hand, you know, this is a, um, this is a, a sector where, you know, straight seniority is never used to, to determine who gets hired. Um, the idea of one's the individual qualities of of someone of a of a of an academic worker are still important, um, particularly for the tenured faculty side of things. Right, there's this enormous amount of vetting around the the qualities of the individual, and we don't faculty unionism doesn't really put much stock in seniority, for instance. Um, but yes, like it is a prime example of a sector where there are two tiers of employment with radically different uh, working conditions and terms of employment that uh, are purely the product of employer decisions to provide and deal with like mass education in the post-secondary sector 
and wanting to find a cheaper form of labor to do it. I mean, that's that's very simple. And that, I mean, you know, universities and colleges are not the only employers that use that strategy. That is a time-tested strategy for employers. You have a bunch of expensive workers who have special skills that aren't easily replaceable. Uh, you want to find a way to reduce your reliance on those people because they are expensive and they have a lot of inherent power because of the skills that they hold. So let's break the labor process down uh, as much as we can so that we can hive off particular parts of their job to cheaper workers who may in fact be equally qualified, but because of the, uh, the, the parceling out of different components of a job, you can pay them less. And that's what we've seen with the rise of sessional faculties is a, is a process that happened to craft workers in the late 1800s uh, and uh, continues to happen today. Now, you know, the, this is also a question of strategy, right, of how the unions in the post-secondary sector have responded to the breakdown of the craft of uh, the, the professoriate. Um, and for the most part, the strategy has been to allow, without much challenge, uh, the growth of this second disadvantaged tier um, and instead to use a very protective uh, approach to you know, protect, protect the, the terms and conditions of the, the, the tenured faculty um, and to regulate entry into that um, workspace, right, into those jobs, and those jobs are shrinking in number. Um, so like that's not purely a faculty union uh, responsibility, but the way that they engage that reduction in the number of tenured uh, good jobs, whole jobs in uh, post-secondary has allowed for this second tier to emerge. And um, yeah, the injustice of it is profound. And all of the us who are in it uh, are, are living the profound inequalities of it. Um, so like my partner is, is a sessional faculty member, um, but I'm also like in a position to hire sessional instructors. And it's like the contradictions of that are, really difficult because you know the structure of the contracts puts sessional faculty into competition with each other and that's another factor that's really maybe under explored in the effect that competition for scarce jobs uh, affects solidarity in sessional faculty unions. Because on the one hand, sessionals share interests um, in the stabilization of their employment, but on a day-to-day -day material basis, they are competing with each other for contracts. And while we might have some rules around seniority that 
that um, help to maybe mitigate that competition and sort of say, well, it's not your fault. It's not because you're a bad academic. It's like this person has more seniority than you. The truth is that there are very few collective agreements that use straight seniority to distribute courses. Like there's also an assessment of the, of the, of the individual's teaching, their expertise, et cetera. And so that constant competing for work um, is very, uh, it, it has an impact on the extent to which sessional unions can create solidaristic communities. I think, uh, and that's been my observation when I was a member of such unions as well, because I, I did have a long period of time where I was, uh, I was active in the TA and sessional union uh, realm. And uh, you know, as someone organizing uh, in that realm, that was a huge factor, a huge barrier, and it still is. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. I, I don't know, I, I, I think, uh, in, in going, maybe going back to the, 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 the strategic priorities in, and how to, what to do about that. I mean, I think there's two main strategies. It's not clear to me how to bridge the gap between these strategies. Because on the one hand, I think what sessional faculty unions have tended to do is focus on provisions that protect the pool of work for sessionals. Um, and stabilize that work for the individuals who are working in that pool, typically. Um, whereas I think faculty unions have tended to want to get rid of that pool and try to replace more of it with tenured positions as much as they can. But it doesn't mean that those individuals who are working in that sessional pool are gonna be the ones to get those jobs because faculty unions also have wanted to preserve their ability to carry out the normal processes of uh, academic hiring, which is like open searches, you know, the best person, quote unquote, is going to win in an open competition. And so there's a there there's a there's a conflict here around how to solve the problem of sessional uh, contracts, um, and the fact that many uh, there are there are these these conflicts of interest over whether or not to protect jobs for the individuals who are doing the work or to create the kinds of jobs that pr produce better quality work life, regardless of who occupies those positions, is is a key problem. Like how how to how to how to meet that. I think in some places, like the use of conversion has, has been a tool to allow for some workers from the sessional pool to, to have a path to permanency, but it's very controversial. And there are very few collective agreements that actually have such uh, provisions, at least in Ontario. Um, that was sort of the scope of our study was looking at Ontario uh, collective agreements for sessional faculty try to assess like how how good they are for sessionals um, and the the you know conversion is very controversial um, because it challenges this notion that faculty unions have that 
we should do open searches and we should let the, the best person on this really international labor market win. I mean, whatever best means, right? So um, yeah, I don't know. I'm interested to hear what you have to say about any of that. Like what, what's your, well, what's your response to those things? Well, uh, my personal uh, journey, let's call it, uh, yes. is directly to this because you know, I, I did work briefly after grad school in the Ontario system, uh, worked at uh, colleges and universities and quickly realized uh, that as a sessional in those systems, I had really no future. I was, there was yeah. neither of the institutions I worked at had any conversion pathway. So, yeah. uh, you know, I picked up and I moved and I went someplace where they did have such possibilities. So actually mm. where I work now, the reason I do, I mean, I work again, still, I still work at a, a couple of different places, but uh, the, you know, one institution I work at, I've chose, I chose specifically because it offered a path uh, of conversion to full-time permanent yeah. status from, if you begin as a sessional working on shorter term contracts. So right. I'm in the middle of that process right now, but just having that, that hope, uh, that, it will pan out uh, and lead to something more secure has been really the only reason I'm still even in this profession, to be honest. Yeah. I probably would have changed a while ago if I didn't have a path to more secure salary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think yeah. obviously I'm going to argue for conversion all day long. Yeah, of course. And I mean, I agree with that. Like I, I very much agree with that. I, I, I think that paths to conversion are really important uh, part of the, of, of, of bringing justice to the fact that for the last 20 years, we've been, I think, collectively um, creating a labor market situation in the university sector that is immoral. Like we, we've been co collectively uh, expanding uh, graduate study uh, and not, and, and basically flooding the labor market so that there is, I mean, whether this is the intention, certainly the effect to flood the labor market with lots of highly qualified, desperate people and uh, not offering the kinds of jobs that would allow for them to uh, ha use the full training of their uh, their, their graduate study and that there is a, uh, there is a conflict of interest here. Like why, why do we continue to produce, um, numbers of people in this labor market that the labor market can't absorb? Um, it, it is, it is a problem, a deep problem. And, and you see the universities, you know, I mean, how conscious it is of this is a good question, but certainly yeah. the labor market dynamics that universities themselves produce are just what you said. I mean, there's, there's, I guess, the initial impetus to have graduate students who are cheap labor themselves. And so mm -hmm. let's get more of them in to teach, mm -hmm. et cetera, or grade or whatever. And then, of course, the downstream effect is that, oh, now we have this, like, as you said, like a ever expanding pool. Uh, of labor to choose from when it comes to any other hirings we need. And so that, you know, that's just your basic labor market dynamic. Like that's going yeah. to drive the price of that labor way, way down. And that's exactly, that's right. exactly what's happened. So mm -hmm. it is, um, it is at times strange to, yeah, the contradictions that, that a lot of faculty live 
who train graduate students. And yes, you, you know, I can imagine that it's very difficult at times to think to think about how that how that labor market is going to pan out for the student who has is very smart and dedicated and has lots of ambition and you you know you wish them the best but you also know what you're sending them off into is uh, is yeah. a strange is a strange mix and, and the university yeah. itself is it is such a contradictory contradictory position because so many of the people who work there have progressive ideals mm -hmm. uh, certainly many people don't like consciously support how this dynamic is working but of course it's just the, the their job it requires them to be part of this that's right and it's not it's exactly that's you've you've put it exactly right is that um that to be in a position to be in various positions in the university carrying out the reproduction of the system is difficult for a lot of people because you know we 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 have in some ways little choice uh except through what our unions do, frankly. I mean, yes, of yeah. course, like you, we, we have the capacity as, uh, and some of us more than others, the capacity to use our voice and our relative security um, to uh, advocate for more socially just uh, employment arrangements in the university sector. And many of us do that, although when we are called to actually carry out our jobs, like structurally, I can only choose X number of people for the contracts and I can't hire, uh, you know, a, a, a person in a full proper job because I don't have the, the power to decide if I have that uh, to, to distribute. And uh, so I have to pr produce, reproduce the system uh, in carrying out my work. So this is where unions in it are really important. This is, they, they are the ones that can, influence the structure of the workplace in ways that is very difficult for individuals to do, right? So it kind of goes back to the earlier discussion that we had, uh, like what difference do unions make? I mean, the, there is no question that unions make a huge difference in shaping the workplace in ways that are not merely in the favor of the employer. But there is a whole huge realm of strategic orientation, like the strategies that unions use to shape the workplace, the kinds of aims that they pursue really matter. And so if unions don't have a uh, critical perspective on the way that the workplace is organized by employers, and they're just kind of tinkering around the edges, then we're going to see the growth of these kinds of um, uh, really unjust, I think, divisions and uh, inequalities. I think that if unions had more of a view, uh, more confidence that the, and a sense of entitlement that no, they actually have a right to make demands about how the workplace is organized, not just how much we're going to get paid, but like how, the, how jobs are going to be structured, how many jobs are going to be available, um, you know, how, how hierarchical is the the workplace going to be or not like those kinds of demands um i think have to be more part of the uh the agenda of unions uh in a way that they were in the distant past like i think that that you know pre-war unions tended to be much more in some ways ambitious because that legacy of craft worker unionism where 
they kind of did control the workplace and they were, you know, they were fighting to retain it from an from employers that were taking it away. And so they had that confidence, that sense like, no, no, like we actually know how best to organize work in a way that meets workers' needs and interests. Um, you know, I think some return of that ambition and sense that like workers and unions actually know quite a lot about how work should be organized to, to not only effectively carry it out, but to make sure that it's, it, it benefits everyone. Um, so I think more ambition uh, is, is really needed, but let's not be naive. It also means some people giving up their interests or rethinking what their interests are. Um, you know, it, it, the university sector is a good example. I mean, you know, for those who are in the tenured pool, like they got it pretty good. And, you know, the ability to rely upon other people's labor for whether it's for research assistantships or teaching assistants or sessionals who are going to take on the big classes, you know, like that actually allows for some people to, to protect relative privilege. And that's some of the stuff that's going to have to be really confronted and given up. So that's, this is not to say that's easy, right? That is a, an internal political struggle that has to happen. And it's not just university workplaces, right? Like that's, that's partly the other dimension of, um, you know, seniority or, you know, tiered workplaces. Like there's some people who are, who have the most, uh, the best jobs, <laughs> the best situation. And of course they don't want to give that up. Uh, and so I think that, you know, uh, thinking about what solidarity looks like, how that means maybe needing to redistribute what exists within the workplace, but then also making demands on the employer to expand what's available. And so that workers aren't pitted against each other for us, you know, competing for scarce good things in the workplace like that also has to be part of the agenda um and but but it, it isn't it isn't um it isn't a simple matter because redistributions amongst workers do have to take place and those are difficult political conversations to have in unions and it 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 means a very deep commitment to uh, democracy and egalitarianism that frankly is not uh, produced by our society. I don't think our society actually trains people in the deep practices of democracy that are needed to really have those conversations and to kind of emerge with a kind of a unified agenda that meets everybody's needs. Like our, our, our democracy, our democratic experience is super thin, right? It's like voting in elections is like the political version of like consumption. It's not the collective process of deliberating, figuring out what to do, figuring out who needs what, how do you come to a compromise? Like those are democratic skills that we do not systematically teach and practice, except in a union actually. It's one of the few places where you can really learn deep democracy. But of course, it's an institution in a relatively thinly democratic society. And so it's no surprise that people don't necessarily know how to do that work. Um, and so I think that I've, I've, I've long felt, and uh, you know, this is like a theme in other things that I've written, I've long felt that like that kind of learning democracy 
is one of the really major things that unions contribute to our society. But it is a very difficult thing because so much of the external environment militates against us having those democratic skills. So and it's another one of those contradictions. Like unions are places to grow democracy and democratic skills, but they also are places that replicate the undemocratic practices of the wider society. Um, and it's a big, you know, kind of Sisyphean task. You know, it's an uphill battle to try to really expand and deepen the forms of democratic practice in unions so that they can be the kind of powerful institutions that I know that they can be that have a broader transformative effect. Yeah. So, so I have it in, uh, in my plans to talk to your, to your colleague, uh, Larry Savage as well, oh, because fantastic. Uh, yeah, I was thinking that maybe um, we got into it quite a bit more than more than I had planned talking about academic labor, but there's lots, oh, to, yeah. be, lots to be said there. And I know you've already published uh, like maybe a, a couple of things, right, about academic mm -hmm. labor. You have a book, a full book coming or? No, no, not a no, book okay. yet. Uh, maybe sometime in the future. I think that might be like uh, another uh, another thing in the future that we do. But uh, yeah, we have actually. Um, I think three things have come out and there's two more that are coming. So oh, wonderful. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff that came out of this project that we did over the last three years um, look, that was rooted in this idea of like, let's, let's examine uh, sessional contracts as such collective agreements and, and analyze them. And so out of that came a whole bunch of stuff about like, militancy and strike rates in in the sector which i think we're going to we're going to explore more in another project um but also just thinking about the neoliberal university and the yeah. way and the labor process changes that are going on in the neoliberal university trying to name those more precisely and that's a that's a piece that's still in uh, it's going to come out in the next uh, little while but um and then we did a, a piece uh, that just recently came out on the history of faculty unionism and the way that the conflict between faculty unions and other public sector unions, CUPE in particular, kind of shaped the character of an orientation of faculty unions in Canada. Um, so, you know, we've tried to take different angles on this. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think it'd be great for you to talk with Larry uh, about that research. Um, there's a lot to talk about. You might need more than an hour and a half. <laughs> He, uh, I know he follows the show on uh, on Twitter. So I remember he was an early follower. I was like, oh, that's nice. Oh, super. What we didn't talk about, but I think really needs to be talked about at more length is the, the questions around like internal equity, like gender and racial equity. Yeah. Um, but maybe maybe someone to talk to about that is is not me so much, but maybe Winnie Ng. Um, and like Larry and I are doing a second edition of... Um, uh, rethinking the politics of labor in Canada. And so oh, we yeah. have Winnie Ng uh, and Carol Wall have contributed a chapter to that on, you know, kind of coming to grips with the labor movements, um, uh, kind of history and approach to equity and diversity. Um, and it's pretty bracing. And I think that uh, she would be great to talk to actually. Um, and I mean, she's a very, you know, a prominent and well-known um, activist and leader for long, long, with a long history. So like, I think she, she and Carol might be great people to talk to if you are looking for that, because I, it's, it's something that I didn't, 
I didn't talk about as much in in our interview, but I think, you know, it was really important. Um, the sense of like, uh, as a dimension of this other contradiction where you see that women and, and racialized workers with very strong propensities to unionize, but then that sense of, of disillusionment and disappointment when, when they get into the union, uh, real space is not made for them in terms of their participation in leadership, their, uh, their ability to reframe the union agenda in terms of priorities, uh, you know, and that the experience of tokenism is real. Um, and that those kinds of superficial approaches to equity um, are they undermine in some ways the support of the labor movement from its most ardent uh, supporters. And that is, that is self-destructive. It is, um, it is a, a, another moral problem that is, is needing real attention. And I think that it's going to require a lot of very difficult conversations um, on, in terms of like, what does it mean to be uh, a union that is committed to racial equity? Um, and what does that mean in terms of the real sharing of power and the real restructuring of how organizations do things? Um, and that the Canadian labor movement has been good on a general level on some of these issues, um, but the deep changes that are ne necessary have not really been made in many parts of the labor movement. And that, that I th think fosters um, real disillusionment with the, with the movement. Um, and I think people seeking other venues, other avenues for organizing around their issues. So I'm not sure that it makes uh, BIPOC folks give up on collective action, but maybe giving give up on unions as the vehicle for their uh, for their interests, and I think that that's a huge problem for the labor movement. It's a it's a big loss. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll I'll be looking her up. This is another thing. I mean. You know, as uh, as an, I, I just kind of happened into this, you know, as a young person, you just sort of I just chose stuff that I like to study and then I ended up here. But actually go, doing English, English and creative writing was very helpful for actually the, the kind of job market that does exist, because we mm. are one one corner of the humanities that they're having a very hard time getting rid of completely. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, whereas, whereas a historian, you know, I think the job market for historians is is much bleaker. Or certainly anybody doing fine arts. Um, yeah. Like the, the, those, those, those corners of the humanities or any like, for, you know, I don't know, Italian studies or whatever, like yeah. anything like that, like you are in trouble if you did a grad degree in that stuff. Whereas yeah. in English literature, there's always, this is another thing that like, there's a huge demand for what I do and for what other English professors do. There's a humongous demand. It's something mm -hmm. I realized a couple of years ago. I'm like, oh, there's always need for us. It's just yeah. The, it's just the conditions of employment have radically changed so that they That's can right. figure out how to pay us less essentially. So. Yeah. And it's, that is, that is the obscene thing really. Yeah. It's like for like, you know, there's always going to be some amount of sessional teaching because there's always some, you know, some people go on leave, you need to plug short-term 
yeah. gaps in a teaching schedule. Well, that, that you know, was someone, its origins, was that. That's its origins, exactly. Yeah. It's like literally like temporary yeah. uh, needs being filled. But like when you, when you are filling long-term ongoing needs with sessional teachers, it's like, okay, well, then you're just, you've revealed that you're, what your motivations really yeah. are. There like certainly aren't fewer. There certainly aren't fewer students to teach. I mean, the numbers yeah. go up and up every year. Um, that's the thing about professions like ours. Very much like a craft profession. I'm so glad you made that comparison because actually, mm. reading your book, actually, I had a meeting with uh, our reading group, and we read the chapter from from uh, Introduction to the Labor Movement. Um, it's the early union struggles in Canada, and reading right. over the craft union period was like, oh my god, that is our profession, you guys. And I, that was actually the argument I made to the group. I'm yeah. like, this is very much what's happening to us this de-skilling this de-skilling the separation of what we like like educational tailorism essentially exactly exactly yeah and um so i really appreciated uh that chapter of the book the group really enjoyed it too amazing that's a wonderful place to end i think um (laughs) yeah thank you stephanie you've been uh, it was really great discussion you've been very generous with your time and oh thank you i'm just so pleased uh to have had this time to talk with you about it and about these important issues frankly um and uh, i really wish you the best of luck with the series oh thank you i can't wait to see who else you talk to 